0: This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Out of concerns for the integrity of elections, many state legislatures have enacted strict voter ID laws to ensure only those eligible may vote. But some politicians and voter advocacy groups allege that strict voter ID laws have the effect of disenfranchising those who are less likely to possess IDs, namely younger and older voters and those from poorer communities. Were voter ID laws to have such an effect, they could change election results and serve to diminish the public's confidence in any and all election results. Have stricter voter ID laws served to reduce the incidence of fraud in the past? And if so, did they achieve that goal at the expense of disenfranchising certain voters? Or have such laws done little to either discourage fraud or those who wish to vote. My guest today is economist and Harvard Business School professor Vincent Pons. Professor Pons recently released a comprehensive study for the National Bureau of Economic Research looking at the effects of strict voter ID laws on elections across the United States over the span of 10 years. His research employed a 1.6 billion observations panel dataset looking at the effects of strict ID voter laws on voter fraud and voter turnout, examining results by age, race, and party affiliation. Professor Pons will share with us the results of his study, the implications for policymakers and election integrity advocates, and whether his research suggests strict voter ID laws are indeed the best instrument for improving the public's confidence in election integrity. When I return, I'll be joined by economics Professor Vincent Pons. PubWonk is a production of Pioneer Institute, a Boston-based think tank that seeks to improve the quality of life in Massachusetts and beyond. Pioneer is a 501c3 organization That relies on your support. Please visit pioneerinstitute.org to make a tax deductible donation today. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvaji, and I'm now joined by economist and Harvard Business School professor Vincent Pons. Welcome to Hubwonk, Vincent.
1: Thanks a lot, Joe. Thanks for uh, having me.
0: I'm happy to have you, and and let me congratulate you uh, on the fact that uh, this research paper we're now discussing was just accepted uh, to the prestigious Quarterly Journal of Economics. Um, That's uh, uh, quite an honor.
1: Thank you. Yes, we were very pleased with that outcome.
0: So let's uh, let's start the show by um, uh, acknowledging that your research covers a very timely and politically charged topic. Uh, we've got uh, activists on both sides uh, claiming uh, elections are either stolen or, or invalid. Um, I don't want to bring up on current events, but everything from the terrible riots on, on January 6th to uh, at the time of this recording, we've got uh, Texas legislators uh, decamping for D.C. Uh, to uh, in protest of uh, election law reform in, in Texas. So it's very, very timely. Let me ask you, what uh, uh, encouraged you to dedicate your research in this area?
1: So we decided to measure the effect of strict laws precisely because of all the debates that have taken place in the US between Democrats and Republicans about these laws. We wanted to bring factual evidence uh, to this debate because we think that uh, concerns for the fairness of elections and concerns uh, to improve participation of all groups are both well-founded, but it is also important that people who defend these causes know Uh, how to best um, address these causes and achieve these objectives. And uh, I think the results of our research suggest that all the attention that has uh, been put on strict ID laws perhaps should be devoted uh, to other questions in uh, U.S. democracy
0: unless anyone accuse you of being partisans yourself i think you are uh, originally from france and your your uh, fellow uh, researcher enrico cantoni is is uh, from italy uh, so you are looking at these this system uh, from from the outside if you will
1: I think that's true, yes. Uh, we don't have any skin in the game ourselves. We're not affiliated either with the Democrats or the or the Republicans, and thankfully so. We are not <laughs> allowed uh, <laughs> legally to do that. So uh, we're, I think, indeed, um, adopting as neutral a perspective on the question as possible.
0: So let's, let's frame the argument uh, and, and address the concerns on both sides. Broadly speaking, uh, the Republicans seem concerned about voter integrity, making sure there's no voter fraud, that you know, each each of us uh, has to be eligible and vote only once. Uh, perhaps on the left or the Democratic side, uh, we want to make sure everyone who wants to vote has access to voting, so no disenfranchisement. Uh, share with our listeners a list of of ways people either can uh, are perceived to be uh, voting fraudulently or being disenfranchised. Frame for us the problems.
1: Yes, no, I think you're, you're summarizing the issue well. I think on the, on the Republican side, there's a concern to ensure that elections are uh, fair, and also to ensure that people trust in the result of the election. So that, you know when they go and vote to the polling station, that they feel that uh, their vote is going to be counted and that only the votes of eligible citizens will be counted. And then on the democratic side, uh, there's, I think, also a very legitimate concern uh, to make sure that participation is as high as possible. And I say very legitimate concern due to the low levels of participation in the US, and also to ensure that all voters, irrespective of their age, of their uh, ethnicity, of their gender, uh, can can vote, and that no one is disenfranchised. So I I feel, and I think most of us would agree that both concerns are very legitimate, and that indeed you want to have an election that is fair, and that you want to have an election where everyone who is eligible to vote can actually vote. The question is, Whether strict ID laws either uh, improve election fairness or uh, decrease people's ability uh, to participate, and uh, our our answer to both questions, based on our analysis, is no. Well, let's
0: let's get to the conclusion. I want to build up uh, and and set the stage and ensure that our listeners don't discount uh, your findings uh, as merely just another. Uh, a study uh, let's start with the data set the panels that you used for your conclusions uh very comprehensive I, I'll let you uh, uh, fill in the blanks but uh, 1.6 data a, a billion data points 1.6 billion uh, you got your data from catalyst um, this is it spans 10 years in all 50 states in the United States uh, so we're do- talking about a lot of a lot of data say more about uh, catalyst and and the data set that you're using.
1: So yes we we obtained this data from Catalyst the analysis itself is completely independent from Catalyst but we are very thankful for them to provide uh, for providing this data um this is data that uh, Catalyst has gathered from each and every of the 50 states so the 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 original data are voter registration rolls from each state in which you not only have the full list of registered citizens but you also know whether uh, citizens participated in previous elections, and you know in 30 of these 50 states whether whether citizens are registered with the Democrats or with the Republicans. So Catalyst combines all this data to have a full data set for the entire country, and then they add to this data uh, information about non-registered citizens that are coming from commercial voter files. So overall, we have uh, good information, both on registered citizens and on at least a subset of non-registered uh, but eligible citizens. So we, 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 we worked on this data. And as you mentioned, it spans the period from 2008 to 2018, which is a, a period in which several states adopted strict ID laws. So this form of ID laws that require voters to show an ID to be able to vote.
0: So you mentioned uh, voter ID again. Uh, this is very important on both sides. Both sides think um, so. A, a voter ID is important to uh, reduce fraud, um, but on other side, there are certain elements of the population who may be less inclined to have an ID. So it may uh, blend or bleed into uh, suppression. So let's let's go a little more or deeply on that. Um, you define in your paper a strict ID laws and uh, not strict ID laws. And as you said, over that ten years, uh, some had already had strict IDs and some imposed strict ID and some, like our own state here in Massachusetts, I would characterize as being a uh, low or non-strict ID. One nearly, merely needs to assert that you are who you are and they compare it to voter rolls. So what does a strict ID law look like?
1: Yeah, so you're right that we need to be careful about uh, what we're talking about here. Um, so... In the paper, uh, we use a terminology that comes from the National Conference um, of on State of State Legislators, and um, this NCSL uh, terminology distinguishes between strict ID laws, non-strict ID laws, and other forms um, of methods that states use to verify voters' um, identity. So. The um, uh, strict ID laws are are ID laws that require voters to show an ID uh, to be able to vote. If you do not have an ID, then you have to come back to the polling station or to the town hall um, within one or three days. Uh, It depends a bit uh, on the state and you have to show an ID after the election. So uh, at the end of the day, it's really not possible for anyone to vote without an ID. In non-strict ID law states, an ID is requested from voters, but voters who do not have an ID are still able to vote. In some states, for instance, they are asked in that case to sign an affidavit explaining that uh, uh, they do not have an ID uh, and they were uh, not able to show an ID. And then there's the last category of states in which voters are either just asked for their name. Or they're asked to sign a register and then sometimes their signature is compared with the, res- with the signature that is on file. So in the paper, we really focus on the effect of strict ID laws, those laws that absolutely require an ID for people to be able to vote. And I think these are the laws in which that, that have uh, been the focus of the policy debate because uh, these are the laws that plausibly could prevent from voters, those without an ID, from from participating
0: so uh, again let's go a little deeper and say does your research suggest which groups uh, would be least likely to have id uh, when voting in other words who who might this law most affect i suppose which groups are at least likely to have an id that's sufficient to vote
1: So our research doesn't uh, focus on that aspect, but there is previous research uh, on this question. And we know from previous research that groups of voters who are less likely to hold an ID include um, minority voters, Black and and Hispanic voters, uh, younger voters, and uh, voters older than 70. And, And there's a last category, which is poorer and less educated voters. Oftentimes, the likelihood to have an ID is the likelihood to have a driver's license. That's one of the most common forms of ID. And so if you're a poor voter, you don't necessarily uh, drive a car, you don't necessarily own a car. And as a result of that, you are more likely to not only not have a driving license, but not have any form of ID accepted by your state.
0: Now, you assert in the, in the paper, and it might be the only assertion that you make that I, I might challenge, you say the ex-ante uh, um, expectation of, of voter ID uh, is uh, ambiguous, meaning we don't know who a voter ID might affect. I think for me, if I were guessing um, you know, w- who would be most affected by a requirement of an ID, the list you just described would be the people I would think would be most affected and in a sense harmed, if you will, uh, or, or discouraged from voting. Why would you characterize, you know, sort of a voter ID uh, requirement um, to be um, am, ex ante ambiguous in, in in effect?
1: I agree with you that uh, we would expect these groups of voters that I just mentioned, including ethnic minority voters, to be the most likely to be disenfranchised by these laws. Um, what, uh, in the paper, we have a long section in which we discuss what effects. Could plausibly be expected on participation and i think on one hand you could expect some groups to be less likely to participate and then on the other hand you could expect some groups to perhaps be more likely to participate because now uh, that they know that IDs are being checked they might be uh, more likely to believe that the, the election is going to be fair and so you could believe I, I suppose perhaps some people on the Republican side believe that uh, if you in implement a strict ID law, then it's going to increase trust in in election. And thanks to increased trust, people will be more likely to show up.
0: Fair enough. That's, that's a great answer. Um, so your, your paper, before you come to your conclusions, uh, examines some of the earlier research in this area and, in fact, does uh, discover some uh, studies that do, in fact, find that voter ID has some effect on, on uh, voter turnout and, and voter uh, results or voting uh, election results. Um, can you say something about the uh, research that, that existed before you came to the topic with your own research?
1: Yeah, So, of course, that's the the question of measuring the effects of ID laws is a question that uh, many scholars before us have been interested in. Um, And I think uh, what we contribute to the debate is uh, first the fact that we come at a time uh, by which um, I think a total of 11 states have implemented strict ID laws. And so we have a few years to be able to measure the effects of these laws. Researchers that looked at this question, let's say in 2010, they had much fewer observations to look at. And so even though there was a lot of policy debate about that, we we had too few years to be able to really uh, provide a conclusive answer to the question of the effects of strict IDLs. By now, we have a little more time. Uh, the second thing that will contribute to the research is, I think that we have passed better data than many uh, papers before us could, uh, could use. Um, for instance, the uh, data set that we have um, indicates using administrative data, whether people voted or not. And this is uh, superior data to uh, data on participation that comes from surveys. We know, for instance, that in surveys, some people misreport voting uh, when they did not vote. And sometimes they say that they did not vote, even though uh, it turns out that they actually participated. So there's a bit of a wedge between survey responses on turnout and the reality. In our case, there's not such wedge uh, because we uh, know the reality since we actually have administrative records of whether people showed up to vote or not. Um, another, I think, important contribution of our data set is that, as I mentioned in the beginning, we have data not only on uh, citizens who are registered, but we also have some data on non-registered uh, voters, which enable us to measure the effects of strict laws not only on whether you vote, Conditional on being registered, but also on whether you register in the first place. And I think that's important because you could imagine that um, strict ID laws uh, discourage voters from even registering in the first place, anticipating that then their ID will be checked um, in the polls. And then the the last uh, contribution of our paper and what differentiates it from previous research is the fact that... um, we really uh, use uh, multiple strategies to measure the effects of strict ID laws. Uh, we use different specifications. And so we go uh, as far as possible in checking the robustness of our results.
0: So, uh, for instance, you, you you assert that if, if someone's not a registered uh, voter, uh, they don't vote, and a strict ID law is passed, and they continue to not vote, how can one assess uh, the delta between uh, system one and system two, if effect, you know, the effect in behavior is zero. How how is that measured?
1: So the the the, the strategy that we use to uh, estimate the effects of strict ID laws consists in uh, measuring the change in registration or in participation after the law has been passed in states that uh, adopted such a law, and then comparing that change. To the change that takes place in states that did not adopt a strict ID law over the same period. And the reason why we use this strategy is that, you know, you could say, Oh, let's uh, try and see whether strict ID laws matter by simply comparing states that have adopted a strict ID law and those that, that did not. But of course, there might be many differences between these two sets of states, including other laws that uh, differ. Uh, and so we just, we don't just compare the level of participation between states with a strict ID law and other states, we compare the change in participation after the law was implemented.
0: So you're following individual voters on, in individual states over time and comparing their behavior as as laws are implemented. You're saying, okay, we're not comparing Alaska and uh, Alabama. We're saying within Alabama, um, this was the behavior of this voter and we imposed the, the ID law and or non-voter, and this is what we had on the other side, roughly.
1: Yes, that is correct. We go, so in the main specification, we simply compare the change in one state and in another, but then in some specifications, we actually focus on voters that were observed in uh, like before and after the implementation of the law, and, and therefore were able to really isolate the changes within a particular uh, person. So this
0: has been a big buildup. We have 1.6 billion data points over 10 years in 50 states uh, and looking at the 11 uh, um, uh, states that imposed uh, strict voter ID laws uh, and you compiled all the data. And uh, so tell our listeners, what is the effect of strict voter ID laws being passed on voter turnout and results?
1: So the bottom line is that we do not find any significant effect of strict ID laws on participation, whether uh, registration or turnout. And um, we look not only at effects on overall participation, but also at effects specifically for voters of, of, of a specific age, uh, voters who are affiliated with the Democrats or the Republicans, voters who are white, or non-white, and voters who are men or women. And we do not find any effect on participation on any of these subgroups. So it
0: does not serve to effectively disenfranchise anyone, regardless of age, race, party. Um, It has virtually no effect at all on any subgroup.
1: That's correct. And I should add that um, you could imagine that our failure to identify a negative effect for any of these subgroups comes from the fact that there are really two effects going on. You could imagine that um, strict ID laws decrease participation for some voters, uh, on like that there's a direct negative effect, but that uh, parties mobilize voters Um, they, for instance, help them acquire an ID or they encourage them to go and vote on election day and that as a result of this party mobilization, the first direct effect of the laws is compensated. So we also look at this uh, in the paper and we ask whether parties get more likely to mobilize voters. And we, we do find some evidence for this. We do find that uh, in states that implemented the strict ID law, uh, voters, especially minority voters, are more likely to say that they received a party contact. But uh, this um, effect of party contact, uh, we can then try to estimate how much of an increase in, particip- in participation it might have produced by looking at the other studies that have... Uh, address that question. And overall, we find that uh, the increase in party contact after the implementation of strict ID law might have alleviated perhaps negative effects of the laws, but that would be very modest.
0: I see. So again, uh, you're a trained economist. Uh, every uh, every policy has a cost. I would call this a, the cost would be borne by those people without IDs, right? Or I guess any voter, they have to remember their ID, right? So there is some cost. So it would be extraordinary that it would have no effect. What you're saying is it may have a small effect, uh, but that's over, or at least uh, entirely compensated by uh, energizing the get out the vote to ensure that those people who do need to go out and get an ID do in fact go out and get an ID. Is it, it, that's what you're saying. That, that's correct. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, now, um, what confidence level uh, do you have for this uh, result? Uh, there'll be many of our listeners listening to you that say, uh, look, uh, another study, another, another result. Um, uh, how do you measure and uh, sort of uh, corroborate your results with, uh, with the broader population? How, how can be confident in this observation?
1: So the, here we're going a bit in the weeds, uh, but uh, <laughs> I'm happy that uh, we get to talk about the detail of the research. Um, as, 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 you know, in my response to your previous questions, I was saying we do not find any significant effects. So what do I mean by significant? Um, it's really a statistical term uh, because the the, the the procedure that we use is basically testing a hypothesis stating the hypothesis that strict ID laws do not have any effect. And then we check whether we can reject uh, this hypothesis. Um, and uh, the, uh, at the end of the day, what we're able to do is to get a point estimate on the effects of strict ID laws and uh, to have a confidence interval that um, reflect how confident we are about our results and how tight this confidence interval is, how confident we are about the results depends on, how many observations we have. So in the study, we have, as you mentioned, 1.6 billion observations. So you would expect that this makes us very confident about the results. In in fact, we have nearly the entire US eligible population in the study. Now, on the other hand, we need to account for the fact that the variation really only comes from 50 states. And so we have a a procedure, um, a statistical procedure to take that into account. Uh, the, the, The fact that, you know, it's a state that adopts a strict ID law, and then if a state adopts a strict ID law, everyone in the state will be affected. So when we take this into account, we are able to assess the the, the confidence of our results. Um, and uh, as we indicate in the paper, we can reject, uh, we can rule out that strict ID laws reduce aggregate turnout and aggregate registration by more than two point three and three percentage points. So we're almost entirely sure that strict ID laws did not decrease registration or turnout by more than 2.3 and 3 percentage points. And then we can also check the effects specifically for different subgroups. And um, we can reject uh, that uh, strict ID laws decreased the turnout of non-white voters relative to white voters by more than 0.5 percentage points. And I think that's also quite important because um, given that non-white voters are more likely to not have an ID, um, Many uh, people have assumed that string laws were decreasing the participation of non-white voters, respective uh, relative to white voters, and we do not find that this is the case. And we can reject uh, confidently even relatively small uh, relative decrease of the participation of non-white voters.
0: So, to bring your research to our current headlines, uh, you'd be confident in saying that state laws being passed in predominantly there are eleven Republican states, right? Um, regardless of their intent, are, are likely to have little or no effect on uh, voter uh, disenfranchisement, particularly minority voter disenfranchisement. And you have, again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, a 99.5% certainty that that finding is accurate. Uh,
1: yes, that, that that's true. And uh, I guess perhaps two caveats are in order. Uh, the first one is the one that we already discussed, the fact that we do find some counter-mobilization against the laws that might have a liability might have alleviated uh, small negative effects of the laws. And then the second caveat is that, of course, uh, we cannot say what the effects of these laws will be in the future. Mm-hmm. And you could imagine that over time, the effect of these laws uh, increases because they get implemented more stringently, for instance, or because counter-mobilization efforts decrease. So we, we, I think it's important that uh, we continue measuring the effects of, uh, of strict laws down the line. It- uh, I, sorry go ahead
0: no indeed i'm, I'm you know we, we have one ha- half of our argument the, the myth of uh voter IDs creating, you know disenfranchising voters i want to get to the other uh equally powerful myth um beyond fraud um we want to talk about ways to ensure that uh, that groups are encouraged to participate um, um now uh, many of alleged uh stolen elections what did your research find about the effects of of voter ID on the other uh, concern, which is voter fraud. In other words, we want to implement these not, of course not to disenfranchise anyone, but indeed we want to make sure there's no voter fraud. Did you find that voter ID actually is effective in reducing voter fraud in your studies?
1: No, we did not. Um, and uh, we really did want to look at both sides of the debates and, as you mentioned, to measure effects both on participation and on voter fraud. But we didn't find any more effect on voter fraud than on participation. Uh, we were not very surprised by the lack of, of effect on voter fraud because there's a lot of research indicating that today the level of voter fraud in the US is very limited. So that if you wish, there's very little space to decrease that fraud given that the baseline level is very small. But still, we did all we could to check whether there was an effect. Um, We looked at data sets that were collected by other people than us on uh, verified cases of voter fraud. So very few cases, but there are some cases that have been verified. They are typically very local uh, cases, not widespread fraud. Um, There is um, So we looked at... um, A data set that was collected by the Heritage Foundation, which is a conservative think tank, and another data set that was collected by News 21, which is a more liberal initiative. Um, And in both of these data sets, there's no evidence that strict ID laws decrease the level of voter fraud from the already very low uh, baseline. And on top of that, we ask ourselves, oh, perhaps there's no decrease in voter fraud, but perhaps there's an improvement in people's trust uh, in the fairness of, uh, of the election. And so for that, we used um, survey data that uh, come from the survey of the performance of American elections in which we checked whether after the implementation of a strict ID law, voters became more likely to say, yes, I trust the result of the election and, uh, uh, and, and to check whether their perception of voter fraud had changed. But again, we didn't find any effect of strict ID laws on this perception uh, by voters
0: that's a very important point i think it, you you make the case very powerfully which is whether voter fraud exists or not the view that it does uh, helps undermine our confidence in election outcomes uh, i don't know if you put a fine point on it in your research but how small is the data set of voter fraud you mentioned i think there were um, you mentioned something like 1700 uh, cases from heritage i don't know how many came from uh, i thought it was carnegie foundation was the other um but, uh, you know, relative to the number of people who vote, I think in the last election, it was something like 70 million. Um, again, I don't know, uh, you know, that you've had smaller elections, but how, you know, what percentage of votes are fraudulent?
1: If, very, very, very few, uh, if any, for a presidential election. The, the data says that we use find some cases of fraud, but they are typically for local elections in which, you know, in a very small town, for instance, uh, an incumbent mayor, Tries to manipulate a bit the result, uh, but even even if you just look, even if we look at you know very local elections like this, you find very few cases. So in these data sets, uh, by the the first by News Twenty One, uh, you no know, found a total of only two thousand cases of voter fraud in a period of uh, twelve years from two thousand to twenty twelve, and Heritage Foundation found even fewer cases, a total of twelve. Um, 1,200 uh, proven cases of voter fraud. So uh, here we really refer to these data sets and, and to uh, the work that other researchers have done on that question. The consensus is that today in the U.S., uh, voter fraud is extremely rare and is certainly not um, systematic. There's certainly not no systematic effort by either side to undermine the results of the election.
0: Well, your results, I think, will disappoint almost everyone in our audience, regardless of their, their political perspective. Um, that begs the question, you say, if if voter fraud is um, virtually nil and voter ID laws are, in a sense, a solution or a, a defense against voter fraud, a, a problem that really doesn't exist, uh, and then the reaction to that is um, uh, allegations of voter disenfranchisement, um, what why are the headlines of our newspapers discussing m- myth upon myth uh, and, and using this um, to energize uh, their base? In fact, in Massachusetts, um, you know, I get uh, fundraising letters from both sides saying uh, the we don't want elections to be taken from us. Uh, we want integrity. Um, you know, don't let them do this. Why? Why are we uh, fighting over a, a, a problem that seems to be non-existent?
1: So uh, I think that, you know, it's, it's good that people have concerns for the integrity of election. I see this as a, as a force for good. And I also see the concern, uh, for everyone to be able to participate in elections as a force for good. Um, in a, in a country like the U S, where, where turnout level is oftentimes around 50%, you know, in the last election, it was, Abnormally high, which was great, <laughs> right. but, uh, usually it hovers, hovers around 50%. That's, of course, concerning for the legitimacy of the result. It's concerning for the representativeness of the results. And so if it were the case that street idios disenfranchised voters, it would be terrible. Um, so I think, you know, the, the, the concern is well founded on the question of how you can improve participation, the, the question of how you can improve people's trust in the integrity of the election. These are extremely important questions. Uh, it's just that in this research, we do not find that strict laws are going to help uh, to achieve either of these objectives. But again, I think these questions are very, uh, um, are very good questions to have, very good concern to have. And in the U.S., the, the history of disenfranchisement of minority voters is still uh, very salient in many people's minds. And uh, I, I think it's uh, very reasonable for uh, uh, Democrats in that particular case to, you know, be vigilant when they see a new type of uh, election laws being implemented to make sure that these laws are not differentiating um, any voter, especially minority voters.
0: Well said. Uh, of course, your your data, your research uh, was two thousand eight to two thousand eighteen. It didn't capture uh, the most current uh, effect on uh, voting, uh, which is the pandemic. Uh, many uh, laws uh, concerning how to vote were were changed uh, to accommodate the health concerns of voters. Um, did any of, you know, again, this is not in your research uh, because it was pre-pandemic, but there are many uh, uh, voting laws that are, are addressing those uh, loosening restrictions, uh, uh, early voting, mail-in voting, Sunday voting, um, all kinds of uh, uh, changes. Again, this isn't in your research, but can you speculate any of these uh, will have a meaningful effect, or is is the theme of your your research that look, if someone's going to vote, um, you know, nothing's going to get in their way. Um, that's kind of how I I interpret it. You know, if you're not going to vote, nothing's going to get you get you there either. Um, but uh, in a sense, all, all this um, concern uh, a new Jim Crow, where where any sort of constraint on on voting uh, is is a disenfranchising act. Uh, what, what can you say uh, if you can infer something from your, or project something from your research on on current voter changes in law?
1: So, you know, whether people vote or not really depends on two forces. The first one is how costly and how difficult it is to vote, what the obstacles are, and then the second is how motivated they are uh, to vote. And uh, I think a lot of research, including mine, uh, suggests that both forces matter. So I would not say that there's nothing that can come in the way of voters participating in elections. Um, I have done research, for instance, showing that I- in France, but also in the US, the process that people have to go through to get registered to vote can sometimes be very cumbersome and can prevent some who nonetheless were interested in participating from uh, showing up on election day. Uh, So alleviating registration costs would be one way to improve uh, participation. Um, We also know, and that's researched by my co-author Enrico Cantoni, that people who are living further away from a polling station are less likely to vote because it takes more time to go to the polling station Uh, on Election Day. Now, uh, with respect to the laws that were adopted in 2020 to facilitate participation in the time of the COVID-19 pandemic, we have some prior evidence that um, if you make early voting easier uh, or if you facilitate voting by mail, this typically tends to improve participation. On on early voting, there's a research study by Ethan Kaplan and a, a co-author uh, um, finding that effect. And on voting by mail, there's a study by Alan Gerber and co-authors from 2013 that uh, find that voting by mail uh, facilitates participation. So I do think that some laws can either Come in the way or, or instead facilitate, uh, uh participation. It's just that strict ID laws don't seem to be one, uh, of, of these laws. And, uh, certainly I think there's a lot of work that, uh, parties can do to mobilize their voters, uh, both the Republicans and the Democrats. This. Um, campaigns, field campaigns, door-to-door campaigns, uh, calling voters before the election day. these campaigns have generalized since the 2000s and I think this has enabled the US as a whole to halt the decrease in participation that had taken place since the 1970s uh, and so I, I, I think we can all only wish that parties continue mobilizing their voters, that they intensify their efforts to make sure that participation is as high as possible and as equal as possible.
0: I think we both sides will agree. We want, well, certainly their own voters to get out uh, in greater numbers. So, uh, uh, But if there's a silver lining of the last election, we had a record turnout or a near record turnout. Um, so something's working. and We've made it easier for people to cast votes and, and they have voted. So we're getting close to the end of the show. I, I, I didn't um, uh, read the title of your uh, paper because I didn't want to give away the, the surprise, but I, I will cite it now. It's Strict ID Laws Don't Stop Voters, Evidence from a U.S nationwide panel 2008 to 2018 um uh uh vincent where can our listeners if they want to do a deep dive on your research and and try to pick it apart uh, where can they find your information both this and many of the great uh, pieces that you've already produced in the past where where can they find you
1: so they can visit my webpage at uh, vincentponce.org uh, and uh, there they will find a um, Uh, research uh, and under research they will find all my uh, articles both that paper and other research on um, on participation
0: i'll admit i I went down the rabbit hole i started reading some of your other pieces Uh, we could make (laughs) 10 podcasts out of what what you've done in the past really impressive stuff Uh, you're really doing a wonderful job and thank you for joining us here on hubwalk you really i I hope have made our uh, listeners a, a bit wiser
1: thanks a lot joe for having me it was a pleasure
0: This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support us. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your podcatcher. If you'd like to help us be found by other people, it would help us if you give us a five-star rating or a favorable review. And of course, it's always welcome for you to share us with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for me or topics for future episodes, you can reach me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.